family time. Lovely pie cup of hot tea and coffee when you came in there. Now, I suggested that we give you all biscuits to sweeten you all up, but Chris very rightly pointed out tonight about poverty and biscuits are a luxury. Which is so right. <laughs> now, my suggestion was we had digestives with a bit of butter on them, but he didn't like that. <laughs> so I'm going home to have mine later on. So tonight is entitled Challenging the Injustice of Poverty. We read in Micah 6 verse 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't done Life Group this week. That's what we're talking about is how do we be humble? What, is, what does it look like to walk in humility? And what, is it like to, what does it look like to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our own communities? Poverty is a justice issue because some people are prevented from thriving. I was thinking of that word earlier and when I came in here, I was ringing a wee family who had sent, it was actually another agency had contacted me today to say that they needed baby milk. And I think that word thriving, we use it so much when we're talking about our wee ones, you know, that they're, they're thriving, they're putting on weight, they're looking healthy, so that's thriving, they're really caught me today. And there tonight, I was talking to a mummy who, she's enough formula to do her tonight, but I'll go tomorrow morning before the early feet to give her more baby formula. And that just, it kind of caught me, you know, it's right, it's just down the street, you know. Poverty is a justice issue because some people don't have enough to eat whilst others have too much. And we've seen that this week already in our food bank, the amount of food bank deliveries that we've done and the orders that we've put in. Yesterday I had to ring the food bank to ask them for an extra delivery. So they were here yesterday delivering and then we needed them to come back later on because there was, I had, I ran out and they had to make some deliveries. Poverty is a justice issue because all people are fearfully and wonderfully made, yet some are treated like they're not worthy of life's basic and the opportunity to be the best version of themselves that they can be. We love options, we love providing people with options, don't we? None of us like to be told what to do, or there's only one path, and I think that's what's so great about tonight as well, is that each of us have been made in God's image, which means every single one of us are creative, even if we don't fit the typical creative role, every single one of us you know, will have a different opinion and a different thought on something, and that's what really excites me tonight, is to learn from each other and how your brain works is different from how my brain works, so what does that actually look like when we put it into action? So we want to go on a, job, on a journey of discovery tonight, be inspired, challenged and provoked to believe that poverty is an issue that we can do something about, and our hope is that this evening will catalyse action, change, new and innovative projects that will make a difference to the vulnerable in our communities. You know, that catalyst word has so much power in it, and you know, I was looking at it lately, and I'm not particularly scientific, but the catalyst word is an outside element that comes into something that's already there. So maybe tonight there's things that are already happening, but you have another idea that will just make that a bit better. So don't write off anything. That, that's the thing, just if you have something sitting, be bold about it, you know, and just, just speak. So a rundown of tonight, which Chris has already given you the wee link there and the codes, we're going to have a quick word cloud activity, so get your phones ready. Then we're going to have a presentation by Dr. John, John Kyle from East Belfast. Where are you, John? Well, there you are. Hello. <laughs> All the way up from the east side. My first full-time job was in East Belfast. I love it. And then we're going to have an interview with Nigel Duke from Portadown. Where's Nigel hiding? There he is, down the back. And then Mark, our very own Mark Knox. Woo! There he is. <laughs> 
and then we're going to have a panel and then a quick survey at the end. So can we just pause and pray before we start and then Chris is going to jump up. So Jesus, thank you that you make it so simple. And thank you that you modelled what it was to be humble and what it was just to serve people. So we just ask you now, Holy Spirit, that you would just flood this place. Just bless us with creativity, <coughs> with supernatural insight into what's going on in our times. We just pray for our communities. Father, we just ask that each of us will just have a fresh insight into what it is to bless people around us, the how you want us to behave, that will not just be them and us, that it will be us and us together. We just ask that you would fill us with your love and that you'll surround us this evening, bless us with a great time and fill us with boldness and confidence to step into something new. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So if you haven't already done it, go to menti.com and uh, type in the code 7861-9370. And it will ask you a question um, around poverty. I think it's going to ask you what are, what, what are the things that, that, that cause poverty. Um, something like that. I can't remember the exact wording I put in. But if you take a look at that and you try and put in one or two words for each one. So if you think educational underachievement, um, then just put education in because somebody could write something slightly different and it will help. Um, but don't be worrying if, if you can't get what you think is a cause of poverty or something that exacerbates poverty into one word, stick two words down. But you can put as many answers as you like or want and it would be good if you could put in multiple answers because it will help us to really see um, what are some of the issues around poverty and actually have it in a nice little word cloud uh, in, a, in a few minutes time. So we'll, we'll look at that. Um, you've got the whole time while John is speaking to, to get onto your smartphone and stick in an answer. Is everybody okay having an okay time with the technology on that one? Because if, you, if you're not, Dixie's here and he'd be willing to, to help you out. Yeah, I'm working, right? <laughs> um, so listen, I, by, if anybody doesn't know me, my name is Chris, I'm one of the pastors in Emmanuel Portadown. I'm also responsible for coordinating citywide transformation across uh, what we do in our different environments. I don't coordinate Compassion in Lurgan, that's um, done in an excellent manner by Nicola McElwain. So um, it's great to have her around as well. Um, but what I would love to do right now is to pass you over to uh, John Kyle, who's going to tell you a little bit about himself, and he's going to talk to us from his experience. So please give him all of your attention. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Chris. Is it okay? You can hear me if you can't hear me, or if it's becoming blurred, just wave from the back and I'll try and improve. Thank you very much indeed. It's really great to be here. Um, Chris suggested that I uh, uh, introduce myself a bit. Um, I uh, grew up in East Belfast, uh, was a member of community, the community of the King, it's always a difficult name to say that, um, and uh, was, a, was a part of the leadership of Community of the King in East Belfast for many years, spent seven years in London, uh, came back to Belfast, joined Christian Fellowship Church, 
Um, my responsibility there was uh, reconciliation, the sort of whole reconciliation, brief bridge building, uh, working with um, some of the Catholics, uh, Catholic charismatics, folks like that. And that led us into uh, meeting with all sorts of interesting people, including politicians. Um, and we had a series of meetings in the church uh, with, with a, really a wide range of politicians, some of them who became quite uh, quite illustrious. Um, Ray Jempe was there, Jim Allister came to see us, David Irvine um, uh, was there along with uh, Alex Atwood. They were great, great mates actually. Um, but but it, out of all those meetings I ended up uh, I, f I felt, um, you know, we're, we're doing this reconciliation stuff in Leafy East Belfast, but I'd like to get my sleeves rolled up and get stuck in at, at the sharp edge. So I joined the Progressive Unionist Party, as was pretty obvious to anybody, I thought. Um, and uh, uh, in fact, I'm sure, I'm certain that I discussed it with my wife before I did it. Now, she contests that, but I'm, I'm certain that I did. But anyway, I got involved in the PUP, and one thing led to another. And then when David died at the untimely age of 52, uh, they asked me if I would take his place in Belfast City Council. And so I've been in Belfast City Council since 2007, uh, uh, for better or for worse. Um, and so it's been a fascinating journey for me, fascinating introduction to working class politics. Um, it, and uh, I, it was, it, to use the old cliche, it was a steep learning curve. But I've learned a huge amount and I've received a huge amount from being involved in what is, what is essentially working class politics in East Belfast. Uh, and it's been a brilliant experience, very challenging in many respects. Um, but it, but um, I think it's opened my eyes to understand what the gospel is, I think, in a more three-dimensional, holistic way. Um, living in London was a fantastic experience. Again, it just took us out of, out of Northern Ireland, Christianity, let us see something different that was absolutely authentic in terms of faith, brought us back here and threw us in at the deep end. And it's been a really great experience since then. I worked for a number of years as a GP in East Belfast. I retired two and a half years ago. Um, I can still give advice about bad backs, but I can't prescribe. <laughs> Um, but uh, Chris uh, asked me very kindly if I'd come and talk a bit about poverty. And I said, yes, I'd be delighted to, challenging the injustice of poverty. And I thought, really, in order to do that, um, well, let, let, let me just start off by saying that we do live in very interesting times. Um, uh, you know, we've, we've got um, COVID-19 still around. We've got an environmental crisis or an environmental emergency, depending on how, <coughs> where your politics lies. Uh, we've got a mental health crisis. We've got an, an epidemic of anxiety, especially among our young people. We've got loneliness uh, is an, another epidemic that we're wrestling with. Increasing inequality, political polarization, populism, uh, We've got a crisis of truth, you know, fake news, what's true and what's not true. Um, and I haven't even mentioned the Northern Ireland Protocol. So, so we, we, we are living in really interesting days uh, and challenging days. And the society, the communities that we live in are stressed. And that's one of the things about poverty. Poverty uh, 
causes enormous stress for people who are trying to live and cope, uh, you know, from, from one week to the next, never knowing if they've got quite enough uh, to last. So we live in a very stressed environment. Um, but it, it begs the question, how should we then live? To quote, uh, uh, um, who was it? Uh, Schaefer said, wrote a book entitled, How Should We Then Live? And I think that's, I think that's a question for every generation of the church. How should we then live in, in, the, in the context that we're living in, in the uh, culture that we're living in? How should we as Christians live? Uh, and uh, poverty is a hugely complex issue. If, if it wasn't, you know, society would have solved the problem. Uh, but of course, Jesus gave us a clue when he said, the poor you have with you always. Uh, and that is going to be true no matter what we do. Uh, but it is a hugely complex issue. So rather than me try and give you the solution tonight, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about what I have. Uh, I, I, I'm going to try and give you the context out of which I live my political life or my Christian faith um, and hope that that helps you to then situate poverty in terms of, of a broader context. I suppose the question that, 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 we, that I want to ask is, is, how can we, what is God inviting us to do? How does God want us to work with him? What is God's mission today, 2021, uh, here, here in, in Northern Ireland, but beyond that, what is God doing? Uh, and, uh, and I mean, we know, why did Jesus come? Why did God intervene? Well, well, if you grew up in Northern Ireland, you know that he came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, and he came to reconcile man to God. He came here to deal with our sins and to reconcile us to himself. But if that's, but, but that's only part of what he came to do. Absolutely crucial and, uh, and vital as it is, it's only part of what he came to do. Uh, so I want to just take us back to the start of Jesus' ministry to try and expand this to, into a broader context. At the very start of Jesus' ministry, after he'd, been, uh, he'd fasted for 40 days, he'd been in the wilderness, he'd been tempted by Satan, he then came back uh, to, uh, to Nazareth, actually. Uh, and he went into the synagogue and he asked for the scrolls. And he's, he's starting his, his public ministry. And what does he read? Well, he reads, for, he reads from Isaiah. In our, in our books, it's Isaiah 61. And he said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favour has come and with it, the, the day of God's anger against their enemies. So he, he is saying that I am, I am the servant that the prophet Isaiah spoke of and prophesied about. I am he. And, and if we look at it again at what God said, uh, or, or what Isaiah said of him, he said, look at my servant, whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one who pleases me. I have put my spirit upon him. 
he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or raise his voice in public. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all who have been wronged. And that, that mission didn't end when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans. That is still God's mission, to bring justice to the earth. Isaiah, earlier on in, in Isaiah, uh, it says, an, an equally a, a really telling passage, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old roots. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance, nor make a decision based on, her- on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word, and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. That, that was the mission of Jesus when he came to earth. And you know what? It hasn't changed. Uh, you know, it has, been, it has been expanded and amplified. But, but that mission to bring justice to the earth is as true today as it was the day that, the, that, that Isaiah wrote it. Um, N.T. Wright says, Jesus came to put everything right. I, I think that brilliantly encapsulates it. There are over 2,000 verses in the Bible directly related to justice. And when it talks about justice, it speaks of protection, provision, harmonious relationships, redistribution, care, freedom, freedom from oppression, belonging, flourishing, equal treatment. I mean, what a rich concept, you know. Uh, what a rich vision. And that's, that's the mission that God has embarked upon. Uh, to bring justice. Justice is about how we treat each other. Uh, Timothy Keller says, Justice refers to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity and equity. All relationships. See, I I think that's what God not just calls us to, but empowers us and enables us uh, and and, uh, challenges us to do. Psalm 33, 5 says, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his loving kindness. And, you know, I do sometimes think... In, in, in Northern Ireland and in, and in the church in general, we, we, we sometimes underestimate the significance of that. I mean, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Um, the, the, the word for loving kindness is an interesting word. I heard Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi, talking about it. It's the word said, and it doesn't really have, have, a, have a, a direct translation into English, but... But it, it, it's, it's not just a feeling. It's translated, it, the early translators translated loving kindness. Uh, and, and he says it's not just a feeling, but an action. It intervenes on behalf of loved ones and comes to their rescue. 
See, th this is the picture of God that is painted uh, throughout the Psalms, but throughout Scripture. Um, in, uh, Eugene Peterson translates it, God's word is solid to the core. Everything he makes is sound inside and out. He loves it when everything fits, when his world is in plumb line true. In other words, when God puts things back together again the way they're supposed to be. And that's what justice is all about. It's all about righting the wrongs, putting things back in their proper way. So we're called to reflect God in the world. Uh, and that means that we're called to love justice, we're called to act justly, and we're called to challenge injustice. Uh, and it's, it's probably good, I mean, I'm taking a lot of time over this, because I, I just feel so strongly about it. I, I think sometimes in our churches, you know, we, 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 we sometimes skip over this a bit. But I think it is so central to, what, to, to God's mission and God's heart. Um, for, for us. So when it comes to poverty, um, uh, I think the undergirding principle, when we, when we want to talk together about how can we respond to the poverty that we see around us, the, I think the under, undergirding principle is the principle of dignity, that, that we're all created in the image and likeness of God. Uh, and that means that, that, that we're all entitled to respect and to be treated with dignity and it also means that that we have a certain obligation or a call uh, to treat everyone that we encounter with dignity and respect um, and uh, uh, 1 Peter 2.17 just says very simply it's a, it's a lovely wee quartet of instructions and one of them is treat everyone you meet with dignity uh, and I have to say, uh, as a politician, I, I think politicians are particularly bad at this, to be quite honest. And, and I include myself in that. Uh, I do, I'm, I'm not set myself up as a paragon of virtue. But I think the rough and tumble of politics just completely contradicts that concept of treating everyone with dignity. And it, it means that you treat your enemies with dignity. But it also means, and this is something that's more hard, treat those who treat you as an enemy and treat them with dignity as well. So it, 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 it is the, it, it's the, it's the, the matrix within which we move when we want to deal with the whole issue of poverty. And because, you know, we, we do live in a very um, segregated, stratified society. And I, I, think, I think, actually, you're very fortunate living in a... Oh, See, I, that's my alarm. Put that on to, to stop me. <laughs> and you're gone for too long. But but um, but you're very fortunate living in Emmanuel because I, from from what I know and I've seen of Emmanuel, you are a very mixed congregation. There are people from all sorts of backgrounds here, which I think is wonderful. And I think that's as the church was intended to be. But you but you're not the norm in Northern Ireland. We are very class conscious. You know, we judge each other by by how much we earn, about how we look, uh, about what car we drive, about where we live, about what, sh what school we went to, about what job we have. You know, and, uh, and th that is all to do with how we treat some people with more respect than others. 
uh, and and I I am challenged with that all the time, and I actually have found it, that it that it it is it has been such an enlarging and enriching experience to meet some of the people that I've had to meet and had to work with, uh, people from very difficult backgrounds, some people with very difficult personalities, some people with very challenging behaviour, uh, but some but yet who can, who have enriched my life enormously. Um, let, let let me move on. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip some of the stuff here that I was gonna say. But um, what I would like to do, okay. Let let me just take five more minutes, and I would like to go to to Job twenty nine. Um, and uh, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for pointing this out to me. But in, in, when Job sets out to make his defence, you know he's uh, he's lost everything. He's has covered in boils, and his friends are saying to him, "You must have been really bad." You know, for God have done this to you. And then he sets out his defense. And, so, so, and this is a little vignette of what, of what a spiritual man or a blameless man or, or person, I don't want to make it you know, gender specific, but, 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 but what, what someone who, who, who was upright and righteous was like. And he says, all who heard me praised me. All who saw me spoke well of me. For and, and, then, and then this is really, really interesting, okay? It says, For I assisted the poor in their need and the orphans who required help. I helped those without hope, and they blessed me. And I caused the widow's hearts to sing for joy. Everything I did was honest. Righteousness covered me like a robe, and I wore justice like a turban. I served as, the, as eyes for the blind, Feet for the lame. Uh, sorry. I was a father to the poor and assisted strangers who needed help. I broke the laws of godless oppressors. Sorry, I broke the jaws of godless oppressors and plucked their victims from their teeth. So I'd just like to, to make draw four points from that. Very briefly, and I, I hope in a way that that is in some way practical. I assisted the poor in their need. <clears throat> I mean, I think, I think we probably all realize that, that God has a bias toward the poor. Uh, that, that, he, that he, uh, he identifies himself with the poor. He, he is a God to the fatherless and the widow. Uh, and, and he clearly identifies himself with the poor. Now, we live in a low-wage economy, not just Northern Ireland, in Western Europe and North America. We live in a low-wage economy. Uh, we, we live in an economy where some people are handsomely paid, some people are actually scandalous, scandalously handsomely paid, and other people are paid a pittance. And so we've got this huge number of people who are working poor uh, in, 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 the, in the country that we live in. Uh, and, and, I, and I mean, God says that's wrong. You know, God does challenge that, the, you know, very wealthy, corrupt rulers while, while the people live in poverty. And it's simply wrong. And, and, and however we have ordered our economy, it's just wrong. It shouldn't be happening. Now, I think there's, 
I think there is a, there is a real challenge there for, for employers. I'm, I'm not sure if any of you uh, are employers. I, I, in my time, had a team of probably 12 people that I employed. <clears throat> and it, I have to say, it was only, you know, I've, I, I've grown up in the church. Um, and, you know, I have never heard uh, a sermon on the responsibilities of an employer. Never. And I have to say, I, I was an employer probably for, for 20 years before I began to realise my responsibilities to, toward my employees. Now, um, I, I, uh, I think when I realised how I needed to be treating my employees. I, I realised that some of it I was already doing. I, mean, I, I think you know, it's just the work of the Holy Spirit. But some of my uh, decisions I changed because I, see, I saw that I had a responsibility to them uh, and, and in particular uh, in how they were paid. Now within the, the health service, there are certain restrictions as to how much people can be paid. <clears throat> but I did make sure that when it came to, to where I had flexibility, that I endeavoured the best that, that I could to show them how much I, I valued what they had done. You know, how, um, how in, in terms of treating the patients, they were as important as I was. It was a team. We, we did it together. Uh, and so, so, so when it comes to a low-wage economy, I think there's a real challenge for us as a church to say, actually, we don't agree with this. This is simply wrong. You know, people shouldn't be, be paying, being paid these astronomical sums. Let, let me give you another example then. Um, <coughs> the, uh, okay, um, uh, the universal credit. You know, th this, this £20 uplift that the Chancellor Shaker gave at the start of the lockdown for people on universal credit, uh, which he has now taken back again. Now, uh, I, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, the lives of people who live on universal credit. I suspect you've got a number in the church. But, but believe you me, £20 makes a huge difference if you're on universal credit. Um, and one of the one of the joy ministers said, well, you know, why don't they just work for an extra hour you know, to make up the £20 that they lose? And, and because, of the, because of the tapering, uh, of the benefit. To make up for 20 pounds, you would have to work an extra nine hours, for most people on average, an extra nine hours to make up that 20 pounds a week. Now, I, uh, when I was a GP, if I, if I wrote a letter for a patient, or, or say I did a, an HGV uh, licensed medical, and <laughs> we'd be doing too many of them these days by the side of things, mm -hmm. but if, if I was doing an HGV licensed medical, I, I was entitled to ask for an £80 fee for that night. It would have probably taken me 45 minutes. So there you are, as a GP, 45 minutes, and I've earned £80. And yet for someone on universal credit to earn £20 took nine hours. I mean, it's not shocking. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, I, I've worked uh, with, with barristers whose hourly rate is £1,000. I mean, £1,000 for an hour's work. So the, the, those inequalities are, are simply unjust. You know, they, they shouldn't happen. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to. Let me just. I'm going to finish off here. Um, 
Job says two things. He says, I was a father to the poor. I, I, I think that's very interesting. Because for, for, many, of our, for many of our poor, uh, for many people who live in poverty, or for many people who struggle with limited income, um, for many people who, who, whose lives are disadvantaged uh, practically, um, they, they, they have come from dysfunctional backgrounds, they've had difficult childhoods, they've grown up in families that have been chaotic, they haven't had clear boundaries as they've been growing up, they've been at a school maybe where they were bullied, there could have been you know, a parent who had alcohol, alcohol problems, there may have been you know, domestic violence at home. So for many people who currently live in very disadvantaged backgrounds, their, their life history is one of chaos and difficulty and struggle. Uh, <coughs> and, and so that's why when, uh, when Job says, I was a father to the poor, you see how meaningful that is. Uh, and, and, and that's where that's where schemes like um, befriending schemes, mentoring schemes, uh, going, uh, working with business in the community, to in, in, in reading schemes, you know, where employers allow their employees to take an hour off a fortnight or two hours off a fortnight to go to a, a primary school and help kids who are struggling with their reading, with illiteracy. Things like that, where you actually are, are just by being there, you're a stable influence in, 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 a, in a life that could be otherwise quite chaotic and quite unpredictable and quite difficult for those kids. So, so there's a whole role, I think, for us as people, realising how, how, when it comes to poverty, sometimes what people actually need is not an extra 20 quid, but it's a, some sort of stable figure in the family. Um, be it a father or a mother type figure. And then finally, let me just stop with this. I'm sorry, I've gone on far too long. Um, let, let, let me just say, and, and, it's, and poverty is not just because of uh, fecklessness, laziness, stupidity, you know, lack of intelligence. Uh, it, it, it's, it, it, it can be, but p- poverty is far more than that. It's far more complex. Uh, and, and there is there are structural injustices that perpetuate poverty, that that, that, that reinforce it. I mean, how how is it? For example, let me just give you another example. Philip Green's retail empire collapses. So Philip Green's uh, millions are in his wife's bank account. So the people who suffer when his retail empire collapses are the lowest paid. They're the ones who pay the price. For his, for his incompetence, for his dishonesty, you know, for his greed, and, and he gets off, re- retains his millions. Now that's a structural injustice, and that's not alone. You know, at, at the the economic collapse, two thousand seven, two thousand nine. I mean, the bankers walked away, you know, almost unscathed, but it was the poor who ended up uh, suffering. It, um, who was it that said? Um, Injustice is not equally distributed. The poor are disproportionately victims of injustice. More often assaulted, more often robbed, uh, more often losing out if there's some sort of social crisis, they're the ones who suffer. So 
I'm, I'm sorry for going on for so long. But, but the structural injustice, as a church, we do need to challenge that. Uh, the individual, the individual uh, suffering, we can address. Uh, and we can then, as a body, act as a voice for the voiceless. Okay. There we go. So, um, sorry you can't see this a bit, I'll find out how to maximise it a bit more, but um, it's fascinating that this is our word cloud uh, from earlier, and I did this, word clouds are supposed to highlight one or two or three things, um, uh, and this one has a very, very complex um, surroundings, and obviously, how many times did you type in education, Mark? <laughs> has a lot of different things that you can see, discrimination, social class, money, injustice, mental health, education, unemployment, addiction, sectarianism, area where you live, um, post-conflict, sexism, uh, peer pressure, the troubles, benefit system, opportunity, all right? So we have confirmed with each other that this is a very complex issue. Um, so I just wanted to do that um, to, 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 for us to keep that in mind. So, what we're going to do next is we're going to do a little interview. Um, so Mark, could you do me a favour, just because you're there, bring those two students over, please. And I'm going to interview um, one of my good friends, um, Nigel Juke, uh, who will, for the purposes of the interview, be called by the name that I know him, which is Ducko. Um, so do you want to come up and we'll have a chat? Hello. You take that and you can sit there. One of the greatest things about Ducko is that he's left-handed. Um, so am I. Okay, so um, I have a few wee questions, but really, let's start with tell us a little bit about yourself. And John, can I have my notes from the back of yours, please? <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. Yes, tell us a wee bit about yourself. Well, my name's Dr. Oh, Nigel too. But the only person who really called me Nigel was my mum and my wife. That lovely little kid in the corner there. So thank you, wonder so are you. <laughs> so I'm a 54-year-old grandparent of a beautiful little girl called Daisy. I have two beautiful sons, Stephen and Daniel. I've been a Christian for 34 years. And I'm sure Chris is going to ask me some questions that's going to scunder the life out of that, so turn away about man. <laughs> Great. Well, could you just maybe start by telling us um, what it was like for you and uh, growing up? My childhood was a, a very violent one for many reasons. Addiction being the main one. In, in my family home, there were a lot of alcohol issues and 
especially at weekend times, there would have been lots and lots of violence. Um, parent coming in full of alcohol, wanting to, you know, take a stamp out of people and me as a three year old, four year old, five year old, six year old, seven year old boy trying to stand between this person and my mother and just violence and addiction and basically just as our, our learned friend there spoke about, you know, chaos. It was just chaos what was done. You know, you, you sort of learn to roll with the punches as it were. I, I, suppose, I suppose, you know, it's it's wonderful to be in a building like this, being able to speak to people and saying, you know, now that I can say, you know, violence and addiction was part of my childhood, but then I met God and that changed the whole dynamic. So what the Brilliant. Um, just to hold your microphone up just slightly more, that's great. Um, so how did that, how did you feel about yourself as you grew up? The violence was easy to take. It was the, the putting down and, and the, the hopelessness and the feelings of inadequacy, being told you were useless and stupid. And because of the sort of, when we speak about poverty, it was around sort of, you know, if you don't know who the smelly kid is in your class, it's you. So I suppose when kids were coming around hopping out invites to parties and stuff, they'd have come to me and went, oh no, you're not getting one. I moved on. You sort of bullying and being put down and having no self-esteem and no self-confidence and no self-worth, but most of all, no hope. Because you don't know how this is ever going to change. And you become insular and you become very much in your own wee world. That's where I got my love of reading. Love to read because in books you could be a king, fight the battle. You could be on top of a mountain. You could be in the bottom of, of, of the sea being a hero. Whereas in real life it was a completely different story. So it was. And um, what was your experience of uh, teachers in those days? Well, basically, you know, I, in primary school, my free place was a football pitch. When I was on a football pitch, I was free. There was no rules, there was no boundaries. And because you were fighting a, f a full grown man every weekend, kids who were the same size as you were quite easy to throw about the place. But it was about sort of, um, you know, it was like school authority figures, anybody who was telling me what to do, I couldn't, I couldn't cope with it. I didn't like it. In the classroom, I would have done anything, knew the answers on lots of questions. Was by no means, it was, was quite a clever and bright kid. But because I didn't want anybody looking at me or, or, or noticing me, because I thought everybody knew I was getting bait and there was all the other things that was going on in my life, I tried to sort of go, go into myself and hide in myself. So I actually got to Portland College, which was, you know, the, the, the dream ticket. But because of my, my sort of my upbringing and everything else, one teacher in particular thought it would be the best thing ever just to start picking and picking and picking. Found out where I lived, came from way back street in Portland didn't fit the mantra and the, the wonderful things about their school. So picked and picked and picked. And then one day I lost my temper, knocked them out, and got expelled from the school. So any anybody in a place of authority, I just had no time for it and couldn't, just couldn't stick it. Yeah, um, tell us that wee story about one of your teachers that you met after you got your degree. Yeah, well I worked, I spent 30 years working with um, at-risk and marginalized people such as heroin addicts and alcoholics and young people, up, you know, 16 to 25 year olds. I was walking down the River Balm one, one day and I met my primary seven teacher 
And I said, hello, sir. And he said, hello, do I know you? He says, Nigel Duke. He says, don't go away. He says, that's me. So he says, how are you getting on? He says, do you know what? You're the reason that I fell in love with reading. And he said, why? He says, well, it be Friday. I sat on, you sat on your desk every Friday from two o'clock to three. You put the, closed the book and you read to us. And that made me fall in love with reading. And at 44 years of age, I went to university and got a degree because I was working with all of these young people and they were saying to them, you really need to get an education because it was a secular job so I've worked in. And I was saying to them, I couldn't preach to them because of the jobs I was in. So I was saying to them, you need to get an education. But I didn't have one. So at 44 years old, I went to university because I fell in love with reading with that man saying that to me. And it was my escape mechanism from all the stuff that was going on around me. Yeah, brilliant. Um, so when you were growing up, um, your circumstances were, were difficult, but how and when did you start to self-destruct? When I was 11, a smoky sea monkey here, isn't it? Sort of, I started to hang about with boys who were 15 and 16 because I was playing football and it was quite good. And the football sort of put me in the contact with these young lads and they were all smoking and drinking. So when I was about 11, 12, I started to smoke and drink with them, hang about with them and do all the stuff that was going on. So my stop the struck button was in. We made Zach worse, eh? We, we footballer, seen him coming in his football kit. <laughs> when I was Zach, just slightly older than Zach, I was turned up to play football and started more drunk. 11, 12, 13, 14, you know. But I was still really, really good. Got picked every week because that was my free place. That was when I could be the person where I didn't have to deal with all these issues that was going mm. on in my life. You said, when we were chatting about this the other day, you said that um, it was the one place where you felt the same as everybody else. You I felt did. Equal. When you got picked, it was that, that sort of... I got playing for Millington Primary School, which is probably the best primary school in the whole world ever. So <laughs> it is. I'm not going to argue with you <laughs> about that. <laughs> I get picture play for that, that primary school one in primary five. Now, look at me, I'm in the same shape as the ball, but that, that kind of, <laughs> I was probably, you know, I made, probably made Zach look fat. You know, there wasn't a whole pile of meat on me, but I, because of everything that was going on, I was able to, to knock about with these big people, and sort of that was what it was all about. And, you know, that roundabout with older people who were getting themselves into all that stuff, you wanted to fit in. Covered in tattoos because they got tattoos, drinking because they drank, all of that stuff, and it was just my, my life was just going down the tubes at a, a fantastic rate. Okay, so your life was going down the tubes, and what changed for you? When I was twenty, my grandmother passed away. The one whole thing that was always constant in my life was my grandmother. No matter what I did wrong, getting expelled from school, everything else that was going on, sat up in Horney, told, she told me she loved me. When she was 20, I got a phone call to work, got out of my work, went to the end of the house, everybody else was put out. She grabbed my hand and just says, Nigel, she called me Nigel too. Two things, stop the drinking, stop the rolling about, and change the world. And she died in my arms, which broke my heart in so many ways. But I haven't touched a drink, a cigarette, or done any of those things from that moment. And I gave my life to Christ after that there. And I'll go back to that lovely wee girl sitting down there. You know you're, you're, you're suffering from poverty when the first per, per, uh, present that person ever buys you is a pair of socks and a pair of pants because you never had them. So, thanks, sir. <laughs>
Great. So what changed then after that for you? The day I got saved, I said to Jesus, I'll go anywhere in the world you want me to go. I'll do anything you want me to do, but I don't want to work with young people. <laughs> <laughs> Within six months, I was a Sunday school teacher, a youth worker, and I was coaching kids football on a Saturday morning. So like, note to self, don't tell people. <laughs> don't tell God what you, what you don't want to do. So, well, maybe not build a theology around that one, no. but um, <laughs> uh, you've spent much of your life working on the streets um, with kids. Yeah. Why and how do you keep going? When I see, I would say easily, I would work with 800 kids a week on the streets and in schools and part of my job. And when you look at those kids and you know we're sitting here tonight, and in Lurgan, in Craigavon, and in Portadown, there's hundreds of kids like me, who, to the outside world, their mums and dads look like wonderful people. But when that door's closed, they suffer exactly the same thing. And when I look into the eyes of those kids, I can see the hurt, and I can see the pain. And Almighty God looked down at me and put gifts within me to see their hurt and to see the pain and to see their poverty, and to try and introduce hope. Did it through education. Did a thing called the Personal Youth Development Programme um, in 2016 with the International Fund for Ireland. We had 24 of the worst young people in Portadown. From we last spoke, I counted up how many community service hours of youth justice and probation that we had with those 24 young people and it came to 3,600 hours. Wow. So they weren't Sunday school kids. So they weren't. <laughs> These were young people who were paramilitaries, drug dealers, self-harmers, you name it, involved in all of the stuff that goes on in that nighttime economy that I would love you people to see because it's a totally different world. And it's, it's that, those 24 young people, to give you a snapshot of it, Two of them died to drug overdoses, a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old, and eight of them went to university. These were young people who, when they came into that program, had no GCSEs, had no education. So to see those young people, my own son being one of them, sitting in a university chair, asking me what intrinsic means, when this, what is it, you know, it, it blows you away. You do it because God, our friend spoke about Isaiah 61, you know, that is the call of God in my life, you know, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, to let people know that no matter what, the matter. Once I, once Jesus Christ put his hand in my life and I knew I mattered, everything changed. Everything changed. I, my relationship with God the Father isn't what it should be because of my upbringing, but we're working on our upbringing. Yeah, <laughs> we are. We're we're trying to work on that. And actually, just on that, um, tell us the the one thing that all the kids had in common on that program, except for your own yeah. children. The only two children that were on that on that program who had a mum and a dad in the house was me. But the other twenty-two young people all came from a single parent family, and it's that lack of a father in their lives. That who, who will put down strong boundaries. Daisy being born, my beautiful granddaughter, has lit a fire within me that I just want to be on the streets in Portadown, in Craigavon, in Lurgan, with these young people 
who don't believe they have anything and they don't, don't believe they're worth anything, just tell them Jesus loves them because he does. Mm. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Just uh, tell us or, or try and get us into the, the mind or the headspace of some of those people prior to being on, on the course with you, what living the dream to those 14 to 16 year olds yeah. would have looked like and how they would have thought about themselves and their future. Of course. I'll give you a, a wee story of a group of eight young girls in Eggerstown on the interface in Portadown. Um, I had ordered two virtual babies and it took eight weeks for them to come. And these were 14 to 18 year old young girls. And in that time, five of them got pregnant. And I was saying to them, girls, aspirationally, what's living the dream? And living the dream for those wee girls was getting the house off the brow and, you know, getting universal credit and living the benefits, getting the house and getting, getting, getting the brew because educationally, you know, by the time these young girls are maybe 20, they'll have three kids to three different dads. And it, that's the sort of world that I work in and, 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 the, and the living. And it's, it's just trying to find the only thing that can change this is God. The only thing that can actually make this whole thing change. Education works to a point. But almighty God, revival needs to hit this place and yeah. change the lives of people. And within that, we're, we're talking about things like hope, purpose, yeah. identity, yeah. you know, all those things that, that we find from a faith perspective yeah. to be really strong. Yeah. Um, what are the biggest disadvantages you think that hold, that hold people back? Well, basically, when you work with a young person and you send that young person back home, you might be sending that child, a young person back home to a house where Dad's a heroin addict, paramilitary, alcoholic. You're building these young people up to fail because you're sending them back into a home where they're, I mean, the eight young people who went to university bar my son all came to me. We spoke about mentoring. A lot of my job was around one-to-one -one mentoring with these young people and they would say to me, when I went home and said I've applied to go to university, my mom would say, why? What do you want to go to? Why do you want an education? Because you're dealing with people who are maybe second, third, sometimes even fourth generation unemployed. The benefit system that people have. Why would you go out and work when someone's going to give you money for, for, for not working? And it's that mindset and it's that attitude that needs to change. People accept poverty. It's, it, how do you change it? You can't. You know, they'll, they'll tell you you can't because th this is this is what it is. Mm. You know, this is this is what this is all about. Uh, and and th and that isn't always their destiny because um, <laughs> you know we we've you've come prayer walking with us on a Friday night, and I've done that a number of times with you, and we've walked the streets lots of different times, and going in and out of coffee shops and things. He only drinks tea, by the way, but. Um, <laughs> You know, one of the things that always struck me is when you bump into somebody who's maybe in their like their mid twenties now. Yeah. It, it's here, you know. And you ask, well, what are you doing now? Mm -hmm. I love standing there because I hear a story of a child who has been given a chance, mm -hmm. who somebody has actually said, "You can be someone. You can do something." You know, somebody has believed in them, and so they say, "Oh yeah, I'm working away here, and I've got a wee house now, or you know, we're we're getting married and." You know, uh, that just must yeah. really just blow your mind that, that that's, that's, that's what it takes. Every single day with me is an adventure. You wake up in the morning, I pack sausages for a living now, <laughs> believe it or not, put 80 sausages in a box. But 
a year ago I worked in a, a heroin hostel working with people. I'd worked all my life with young people and God decided I'm going to show you what happens after they're 25. And I worked in, in a heroin hostel and I stopped working in a heroin hostel because a young fellow was working 23 years of age. I spoke to him on Monday night. He says, we'll sort out my, my tax credits and we'll sort out all my stuff on Thursday when you come back in. Duck away, he says, no problem. I got a phone call, half past four, on the Thursday. He had went up to the fourth floor of the castle court and jumped off, phoned a taxi, phoned the taxi driver by name and jumped off onto his taxi. And not one of our staff had went near that young fella from Monday when I left him. And I thought to myself, how can I, as a born again Christian, let that young fella go out into eternity without telling them that Jesus loved him? Because I was working in a, a secular job. And that's why I love prayer walking and putting sausages in a box because I can tell people about Jesus when I'm doing it. So <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So just one last question for you. Um, we were talking about how you send the kids back to, to homes where um, they're not going to hear a positive message. Do you believe that the investment that you can make in young people can all the same investment and change and transformation can be made in adults? Absolutely, 100%. You know, it's like, in some cases, I'm working with young people and I work with their parents. I'm working that long in it. And it's seeing them making those a very wise person once said to me, life creates voices. Those voices make choices and those choices have consequences. And the consequences of these voices and choices that these people have, when they're negative, they breed negativity. But when they're positive and when they come from heaven, they can change everything. When we speak, our words, we don't, I don't think as a group of people and as a room full of people, we understand the power of our words. When we speak positivity over, over people, it changes their whole life. It changes mm. their whole families. You know, I look at my wife, the first person humanly, bar my gran, who looked at me and thought, I can be me with her. I don't have to be someone else. I can be, she calls me Nigel. I think there's a lot of times when I'm working with people, the persona of Ducko is what they say, but she knows the real me. She knows the boy who gets phone calls at half four in the morning because some wee lads are out on the rip and, and mummy and daddy doesn't know where he is and we're out looking for them. That's the world that I live in. But, you know, change. Change is coming to Portadown, to Kirkavon, to Lurgan. I can feel it. Mm. I see it every day. It's coming. Great. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Give me a big round of applause. So good. Um, so over to Mark now. Uh, he's going to come and talk to us about um, something quite related to a lot of stuff that Doctor has said to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sing a song here to fill the silence. As I bring my laptop up. Dexter, sing us a song. Right, my laptop might fall off this. Which will make us all panic. So somebody tell me if it's going to fall. I don't print things because uh, Spire has not enough money to print. So, um, I'm going to switch this right here. 
Hi Mark from Aspire, good to see you all. Um, I've no idea what my job title is. Um, we uh, we got this thing on work one time to like uh, coordinate people's work. Um, everyone else had to type in their drill bro, but I promise you I didn't get the type mine in. It automatically made itself because I made the program. And it said CEO slash founder slash boss, right? I would never write that about myself. <laughs> but the other staff went on and was like, why did you call yourself CEO, founder, boss? And they don't believe me that um, I didn't do that. Um, if anyone's ever watched The Office, the British one, um, David Brent refers to himself as a friend first, a uh, boss second, probably an entertainer third. And that's how I like to refer to myself. Um, and work, so I work for um, Aspire and I. I'll tell you a bit about what we do in a while. Um, I'm going to tell you um, a bit about um, educational attainment and how child poverty affects people's education. Um, it might feel a bit stat heavy, but just take what you can from it. And then I'll tell you some stories as well. Stats and stories. Some people like one, some people like the other. We all go home happy. Or sad, because it's really sad uh, material, sorry. Um, but in the 19th century, there was a movement led by Christians in inner city London, and it was called Ragged Schools. This is before education was free. And these were charitable organisations dedicated to fr the free education of poor children in the UK. The schools were developed in working class districts of uh, London mainly, and in 1844, the Ragged Schools Union was established to combine resources throughout the country, providing free education, food, clothing, lodging, and other home missionary services for these children. And free education now exists in the UK because of these creative followers of Christ. That's where the free education system came from. So when it comes to poverty and education, this is our story, okay? As a church, this is our story. This is part of who we are. Also, side note, that isn't on my notes. Uh, I once did a talk at Summer Madness called The Church Don't Care About Poor People and no one's shown up to prove my point, but you've proved me wrong here tonight. <laughs> Back to this. Um, free education exists in the UK because of these people, but ragged schools are something that I would like to see just put into a museum. But actually in 2021, social class remains the strongest predictor of whether somebody is going to achieve or not achieve in education. Right? It's the strongest predictor. So I did a PDCA, which makes you into a teacher. Um, it's like a magic box you go into and you come out and you're a teacher now, or <laughs> a shirt and tie. Um, I did PDCA in 2014 and there was a lecture, it caught my heart, caught my attention, it changed my life, where the, lecture, the, the lecturer began the lesson by saying the biggest indicator as to whether a child is going to achieve or not achieve is whether they are born into a family of money or not. Like the biggest indicator, like straight away, I had a child. Well, Heather gave birth, but I was involved, um, 10 weeks ago. And Sadie's chances, my daughter's called Sadie, and Sadie's chances of achieving are high just because she was born into our family. But her chances are half if myself or Heather was to end up with a disability or to lose a job. Like, her chances aren't all dependent on her or her effort. They're dependent on the house that she comes from and the income. And that for something, that's something for me that just isn't right. So I set up a spar. Um, five years ago now, um, to try and do something about this. So in Northern Ireland, there are 100,000 young people who are eligible for free school meals, which is the sort of the level that we use for measuring uh, young people from low socioeconomic backgrounds. So there's 120,000 young people in poverty in Northern Ireland. That's a massive figure. Um, and there's an attainment gap, right? I'll explain what that means. I'll stop using all these big words. But there's an attainment gap of 17.6% and children entitled to free school meals to children who aren't, right? So what that basically means is, if you want it, so if you're on free school meals, 70% of young people are getting five GCSEs, grades A star to C, and 90% are who aren't on free school meals. And if you do, if you include miles in English in that, the gap gets even wider. 
So basically, you're most likely to achieve if you come from a family with money, and you're most likely to not achieve if you come from a poor background, right? That for me is something that is shocking. But what's more shocking, according to the Talking Jesus survey in 2015, 81% of the church population have a university background. 81%, right? So only 45% of the people in the UK have been to uni, but 81% of the people who go to church have been to uni. Now, I'm no mathematician, but you might be piecing this together and realizing that if you're born, like 120,000 young people are in Northern Ireland, if you're born into a, a family that doesn't come from money, you're not likely to achieve. If you go to church, you're likely to have been to university. We have not only got a group of people who are underserved and who are underachieving, but we have a group of people who are unreached and who are not in our churches. We find a missing people group. And we have a predominantly middle class and university educated church who are unaware of the reality of vast swathes of people who are in our towns. I've been to uni, don't feel guilty here, I'm, I'm with you. Um, but when faced with these facts, we are left with two questions. Why are the poorest young people not achieving in school? And how can the church help? That should be two things that we want to ask. Ezekiel 16.49 says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. How sad would it be if that first was to define how the church treats the poor in 2021? I do not want that to be our legacy. Right now, it is. So what is the problem? Here comes a lot of stats, but I'll try and fire a few stories in as well. So there's many reasons why low-income children are not doing as well as their, um, their peers. Many people believe in social mobility. Have you ever, you've heard the term social mobility. It's the idea of a trickle-down economy. Give a load of money to businesses and corporations. That money will trickle its way down and everyone's a winner. That is a lie, okay? If you're born poor in the US or the UK, you stay poor. Our two countries have the worst levels of social mobility in the world. Um, in the UK, being born into the bottom fifth of society means there's a 30% chance that you will stay there. So for many, many people who are born into poverty, it is a life sentence from the minute they're born until the minute they die. Social mobility is, is a lie. Trickle-down economy is a fantasy. That means that poverty is statistically a life sentence. Um, many commentators have said low-income young people seem lacking in aspiration. We're called despair. Um, you can go they're just really lacking in aspiration or drive. But is it any wonder? because young people who are growing up in poverty are often surrounded by other indicators of disadvantage, such as high unemployment rates, um, the percentage of single parent households, crime, other things like that are often surrounded by young people. So I want you to imagine if you're born into a family, into an estate, into a town, and all you've ever seen is deprivation, why would you come to expect anything else? But yet we often blame these young people for not having enough aspiration. It's not their fault, even from birth where you're born will affect your education. Research carried out in Northern Ireland by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, who are related to Rowntree's fruit pastels, I know you were thinking it. Um, it was found that, this is from, because Sadie's just been born, this is mad for me. Um, it was found that from as early as 22 months of age, children of well-off parents are already 14 percentage points higher up the scale of educational development than children in, look from uh, low-income homes. By age three, like I was so young, that was before you started school, Children um, growing up in poverty are a full year behind children from better off families in relation to cognitive development, social skills, and school readiness. It's not mad, like three, you're ready behind. Um, and UK-wide research tells us that a young child in a professional class home will hear three times the number of words heard by a child in a home where the parents are of a low socioeconomic status. And slow language development is going to affect you here when it comes to comprehension, learning, and even numeracy. So before a child is even five, they've been brought up and they're already at a disadvantage. Um, 
I was talking to a friend about this the other day as well. They, you notice these things from P1, hopefully schools are better now, but when I was in P1, like, you know they put in your reading groups, and uh, the trick when I was in school, they tried not to call it like, top, middle and bottom, but you knew if you were an eagle or a pigeon, right? You knew what was going <laughs> And uh, from as young as five, whenever you're like being split up to do reading, you can pick up, if you're five, and you're, you're, and you're well, everyone who's five can't really read a whole page, let's skip to like, say you're seven. If you're seven, and you, re you, really, you realize that the books you're reading are really simple compared to the other kids, and you start to self-exclude, is what the, the research has said. So children are starting to self-exclude. So whenever they're doing something else, they can hear the, the eagles reading their book, they're going, why did I not know those words? Why can I not, not read those words? And levels of aspiration or hope for young people begin to drop off um, as young as five years old. Joseph Browntree Research also found that um, well-off young people wanted to go to school to achieve an education to live a really great life, whereas low-income young people thought education was a way to avoid problems. Like, weren't even aiming high. They just thought, if I get a job, that might get me out of some problems. How sad is that? The children are aiming to avoid having too many problems rather than ever dreaming big. And lo lots of disadvantage comes from home environments, right? But hear me in this, because this is like the thing that annoys me the most. This is not something that we want to blame the parents for, as they often are. To blame the poor for their poverty is lazy, factually incorrect, and degrading towards the people. Poverty, people in poverty are made in God's image and are often victims of systems around them. Systems that Paul would call powers and principalities, or we might call modern day capitalism. Children in middle class families will normally come from a more academic background and will naturally be around books and reading from a young age and they'll also have greater access to learning facilities such as tablets and computers. Um, but when it comes to children from low income backgrounds, they may not have these things. Digital poverty was a bit of a buzzword during the pandemic. As you saw, all learning went online. And like, believe me, there's loads and loads and loads, not one or two, there's loads and loads and loads of children in Lurgan, in Portadown and Kurgavan, who did not have access to the internet, who did not have access to tablets um, and to computers. The 2019-2020, um, only one of our young people didn't achieve five GCSEs on his back, and the reason was they didn't have a computer and they didn't have Wi-Fi, so they couldn't do any of the work. Therefore, they failed the GCSEs, therefore they have no education. Like, this is a real thing. And often we think of like tablets or laptops as a luxury. Sure, they're not poor, they've got an iPad. As if like we gotta wait until people are on the streets before they wanna help. These things are no longer a luxury. The education system is being built around the idea that people have technology. So if people don't have these things, then um, they're being deprived of their education. Poor children will often share rooms and not have large gardens, right? Again, you can go, that's a luxury. But the lack of space and the lack of room to do your homework and to learn is really, really, like really, really affects young people. Um, a cramped work environment is less conductive for doing your homework. Um, and low-income parents may be less familiar and less comfortable with their child's homework, especially as they become teenagers. They may not be able to offer the same help that other children receive. And I know parents, personally know parents, who are so intimidated by the work that their young people bring home. Maybe they've had a tra traumatic time in school themselves. Maybe they struggle with reading and writing, and suddenly they're given work to do. They're not awful parents for saying, I can't help you with that. It brings back some of their own traumas and the experiences that they had as well. A parent's income can massively affect a child's education. 57% of low-income young people have missed school trips because they were too expensive. And um, many young people worry about asking their parents for any money at all for school. Like when I was in school, you need to bring a pound in for comic relief to wear your own clothes. I didn't think twice asking my mum for a pound, but a pound's a big ask for some people, for many, many people in our community. Um, almost a quarter of parents in the UK now pay for private tuition, which is an average price of 22 to 25 pound an hour. And this is completely unaffordable for low-income families. 
And another factor in why low-income young people are not doing as well compared with their middle-class peers is that their leisure activity is not as educational. Okay, so young people from estates will often play street games, which is really good for social skills and um, for being a bit crack. Um, but lots of middle-class kids are spending lots of their leisure time doing learning, whether it be horse riding lessons, musical tuition, and sporting clubs you have to pay into. Um, this constant learning strengthens their ability in the classroom as well. But who are these poor people? Who are these poor children? Some of the most likely children to be in poverty are children who are disabled, children who have uh, the mother or father who has a disability, looked after children, children who are carers to the parents, um, travellers, or many, many children from single parent households. Children in receipt of free school meals are far more likely to have lost a parent and um, to have experienced severe mental health problems or to be a carer to one of their parents. Um, it's almost 70% of young people in poverty come from a working family as well. Um, this has already been mentioned, but people are working for their poverty. Mm. People are going out and working for their poverty. Like, there's something wrong, the system is not right. And when you know people's stories, right, as I've got to know people over the, the last five years, and when you see the children, the young people's faces week in, week out, nothing gets me angrier than a lazy caricature of poverty. The notion that the children that we work with would be bad children, whose parents are facing the system, who have no drive or ambition, and have I met young people who fit this stereotype? Yes, I have. Have I met people in church who fit this stereotype? Yes, I have. Um, but it's a small percentage of our young people. But the story of the feckless, lazy, poor person is a great story for a Channel 4 documentary, for a newspaper article, or if we want to scapegoat the victim and relieve ourselves of any responsibility to look after the poor, the best way to get out of looking after the poor is to blame them for their own poverty. But it's not right. Um, so at Aspire, right, I'm not just going to tell you where the answer to everything, but maybe we are. It's not for me to say, it's for you to say. Um, let me tell you a few things that we do and a few things that have worked, because we're not just here to complain. We're here to also go, we can do something about this. Like, change is possible. And it is, like, it sounded a bit bleak, but I'm hopeful and full of hope that things can happen. So we provide um, sessions, right? So um, it's like homework club, but homework club doesn't sound cool. So we call it sessions. Um, after school, where we sit with the young people and we help them to do their homework. And basically we do what my mum did for me. We make a cup of tea, or a fruit shoot, whatever they want. Um, and we, uh, we sit with them and go, have you got any homework? Do you want to get it out? Get your homework done. And we help them to do their homework. We run an academy. Andrew runs our Aspire Academy. Um, which is like extra training for young people in whatever they want to do it in. We've provided them training in art. We've all designed t-shirts, businesses. We're trying to set up their own businesses at 14, 15. Skateboarding, I go to that and try my best. Um, youth work, we've had eight young people who qualify with those games in youth work. Barista, where last week they were learning how to draw wee hearts in their cappuccino. Um, music, where they're going to do music production. And then we provide a camp as well, which is a space for our young people to get away um, from their, their home environments, to be with each other, because we work in every school, so there's like Protestants, Catholics, and everything in between. Um, we all go away together and we explore the idea of faith as well. Like Exploring faith is something that young people in poverty also have, there's massive barriers to it. Like, if you can't concentrate for 10 minutes in class, try a 45-minute sermon. Um, just the, the very environment, the way that we set up and do church, is really good if you've been to uni. If you've been to uni, you've sat in a lecture. If you haven't been to uni, you've never sat in a lecture. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's difficult for the young people. But we have seen many young people come to faith in Jesus, and we've seen 92% of our young people achieve five GCSEs, grades A star to C. That is higher than the average for non-preschool kids. So Aspire works. And we've seen this because of the power of God and because we believed that change could be made. Like we really, really believed it and we've seen it happen. But it gets us down, okay, and this is more to encourage us as we go to think about what we can do. It can get us down at times in the office that our pool is so small. 
Like there was a hundred thousand young people that received a free few meetings and we worked with about three hundred of them. Like you can no we don't work with about <coughs> hundred and fifty, don't worry about that figure from. Um, but it can get us down. You're going like, well, we even making any difference. But our job, we feel, is to both pressurise governments and systems to make change, but also provide a small pool, show the world out there that another world is possible. Have this small little group of people that we go, it doesn't have to be like this. It can be like this. It's a living, breathing example of another world, or perhaps what Jesus would have called the kingdom. And at Aspire, we have a motto, which is we will change the world with the stories we tell. And we genuinely believe it. It's one of the best things about working for Aspire. We have a meeting, and we're not being ironic, we have a meeting once a month, we call it the How to Change the World meeting, and we're being serious. And we sit around and we go, well, how are we gonna change the world this month? And we try our best, because we genuinely believe that whenever we tell our young people stories to other people, they wanna get caught up in it. Whenever we tell the young people the God story, and they get caught up in that, something special happens. And we believe that their stories are changed, and as their stories are changed, we will change the world. Because with man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So be encouraged tonight as you, as you talk and as you think. Like you might think you're not changing the world, but we've changed a few people's worlds, um, and that's maybe the, the best we can do. I'm not going to talk for much longer, Chris, don't worry, but just let me tell a few stories, because they're nice, just to give you a bit of hope at the end. So we, I just want to tell you about a few people, just to give you a bit of insight into people's lives have changed. We had um, a young person who came along who was called Katie, and Katie wasn't a really bad young person. A lot of people, uh, like schools at the start, wanted to just give us bad kids, and we were like, I don't think anyone help with their homework. And um, so we started asking who's like, who's uh, from a low income background but would like to achieve? And they gave us this girl called Katie. And Katie was uh, kind of doing okay in school, but the teachers thought she could do better. And that was whenever she was like 15, she walked in, she was quite shy. And Katie is just started uni last month. Um, and Katie is a Christian. And Katie leads worship in Cara. And she can't sing a note, but she leads worship in Cara now. <laughs> I hope this isn't being recorded. Um, and, but she's just one story of someone whose life's been completely changed. Or we have a, another fella who's, uh, who's called Glenn, and Glenn, like I've told this story before, like, this is, like, oh, I sit down now. Yeah, getting real comfortable, aren't I? Um, so, too comfortable. Yeah, I'm going to go in, get away now, I don't worry, Chris. <laughs> like, two more. Leave me alone. Um, I have no alarm set, my phone's down there, I think I'm here all night. Um, Glenn was, was one of the young people that, like, I was used to poverty, but then it shocked me whenever I, um, he said one day he had to do homework. And um, we had to listen to two songs and compare them to each other. And I said, just do it at home. That's not really in here homework. And he was like, I don't have the internet. And I was like, wow, does not have the internet? That's mad. And I said, they're well, so mad he doesn't have the internet. And then that same day he said to me, um, I was like, does anybody want this carton of milk? Because I don't want it. So I'm going throw it in the bin. And he was like, can I get your milk? Because mommy doesn't get any money to Tuesday. And we've been eating our cereal dry. And that just proper hit me. That, like there was somebody sitting in our town who didn't have milk to Tuesday. And like, you know, he might still not have milk all the time, but Glenn, now he goes to church with us. He became a Christian at Glue. Um, he has a church family. Last week, his uh, mom, or two weeks ago, his mom had COVID and the whole family were stuck inside and he had a church family who turned up with like food for him. And he's a different guy altogether. Um, and I'll just tell one more, Chris, and I promise I'm gonna stop. Um, there, there's one more guy um, who you were talking to last night, Gemma, um, Sam, uh, and uh, he came along and uh, Sam, Sam's an orphan, he doesn't have one more dad. You know what an orphan is, don't explain that. Um, his mum and dad both died by the time he was four. And uh, he came along to Aspire and he was he was just brilliant. He just loved it from the very start and he came along to our camp. And I remember he just went into the prayer room, he's like, there's something about that prayer room. And uh, he is now um, doing an apprenticeship and he's working as a joiner and he's in full-time education. And he said yesterday he wants to come next year and do some stuff with Aspire, he'd love to be an intern. And we have maybe um, six or seven now of our young people who volunteer for us. So it's really lovely to see that 
all turn around. So change is possible. It might seem small, but you can do good things. And Chris is getting nervous, so I'm going to stop now. Stay there. All right, so we are sort of running a little bit over time, but can you indulge me in a little panel? If um, John could come up, and, and Mark, and Ducko, and uh, Gemma, uh, and grab a stool each. So, this is your chance to ask some questions. I have some really good questions too, um, but this is your chance to ask them some questions. Right, hold that there. Does anybody have a question? If you put your hand up, I'll bring the microphone to you. Matthew. Hey, um, it's just uh, something you, you, you mentioned about um, church being sort of a difficult place for people who, you know, aren't, aren't kind of uni people. Um, you know, just some stuff that you may have talked about, Ducko. Just, I was kind of looking all of your thoughts on, you know, how, how do we, how do we do church in a way that is kind of culturally welcoming to, to people kind of from a working class background and kind of from people who maybe aren't educated? For, for me, that's a simple one, Matt. Just work with them where they're at, in parks, under bridges, wherever you meet them. Just, especially young people, help people cut their grass. Just where people are at, that's just what you do. And show them the love of Christ just in a practical way. You know, it doesn't need to be in a building. But then, my heart's to be outside to be for, that's, that's a hex or easy it, man. Any other um, yeah, so like both and when it comes to like the when it comes to like the general Sunday stuff, it's uh, both learning how to um, be more interactive and use more videos and incorporate small groups and questions into your Sunday gathering, work young people into small groups, but also not be not becoming anti-intellectual at the same time because we're still pro learning, right? So like I really want young people from low-income backgrounds to be able to have a place that they can come to church, but I also want them to learn to love the Bible and learn to love. Um, learn about Jesus, like us learning isn't a bad thing. So it's both on. It's you know, putting the effort into small groups, into meeting them where they're at, and they're doing things that are they're used to, small chunks, but also helping the helping them to learn and learn to sit through something slightly longer, but keep it interesting. Brilliant. Okay, next one. Hi guys, um, I have just a couple of comments to make and maybe a question as well. First of all, uh, Dr. John Kyle, I always really admired CFC Church for doing the Bridges Forum back in the day, which we're a huge part of. I admire you for being part of that and the leader of PUP because the working class Protestant population need proper representation because it's certainly let down by certain bigger parties. Um, Aspire MI is certainly inspirational, by the way. I also think that the working class Protestant kids in Northern Ireland, I don't want to bring religion into it, even though I have, but they're being let down big time on to a lesser extent than the Catholic children. Um, I personally believe that Northern Ireland's greatest film is that we don't have an integrated education system. Two things, because the DUP, with their sense of self-righteousness and their own um, whatever, would never buy into it. Sinn Féin won't buy into it because they see that as an attack on the, the Catholic education system, which is just wrong. When are we ever going to get political leadership that have the drive 
and the will to actually say, you know what? I mean, can you imagine? A five-year-old child in Northern Ireland is black and white, and they go to two different schools. And we put up with that in Northern Ireland. We actually let our children go to two different schools. That's wrong. If we have an integrated education system, I think people, kids in general, will get a better education system, which hopefully would ultimately help with the entire poverty thing. Maybe I've gone off track a bit. Apologies. Um, one of the one of the things I have noticed, um, so obviously there is like there's a the working class Protestant boys are obviously suffering the worst when it comes to educational underachievement. Um, so I, I wondered why there's not big studies into it. So this is purely anecdotal on my own thoughts. But um, I work in uh, like all sorts of schools, like Protestant schools, and that's not what they're called, integrated and Catholic schools. And when I work with Catholic young people, often their church and their GAA club and their school are working together and what like it's got a clear flow they're going you're a part of this thing your sport is here your school is here your church is here and when it comes to uh protestant young people particularly working class protestant people their youth groups over here their schools over here their churches over here and everyone's banned for their attention and you can't give yourself to everything so i also wonder is there something that we should do and um, where we're working better with sports clubs organizations and schools to try and create some sort of sense of togetherness because the togetherness in the community that you find in Catholic schools um, definitely adds to them achieving an education. So I don't know if that's any use, and that's not scientific, that's just made up by me. It's a good anecdote though. Um, I would just add that uh, within the Catholic working class community, there's much greater emphasis on education, education achievement than you get, you know, say at the bottom of Newton Road. Um, and, uh, it, and it, it's been there for 20 years. And I think that, that, that uh, you know, fo folks like Mark, are turning that around and changing it and building up a sense of aspiration. But part of the political problem, I think, as well as academic selection at the age of 11, and the problem is that, um, that kids are either smart or stupid as a result of that. And so many parents from working class backgrounds failed it or they didn't even sit it. And they've always considered themselves to be stupid. And if I'm stupid, why would my kid be anything else but stupid? So I think that's a real political problem and I do think that we need, I mean, I know that, I think down here, you, you, you've got a, a different system, haven't you? Um, but, yeah, Dixon Plan. But, but certainly in the, rest of, in the rest of Northern Ireland, with academic section at 11, I, I think that is a problem that we haven't really addressed politically. Great, okay. Um, next question, if anybody has one. I'd just be interested to know what poverty is. Um, well, there, there, there is a technical uh, definition of poverty, uh, which is, um, I think that's your, uh, uh, was it 60% um, of the mean income? Uh, it, so if your income is less than 60% of the mean income, then, then you are categorised as poor, or living in poverty. Um, I, I suppose um, uh, it, okay, there's a PhD thesis in that, in answering that question. <laughs> but, uh, but to all intents and purposes, uh, I, I think for many families, it boils down to do you have enough, do you have savings or not? If you don't have savings, you're living from one week to the next, then you're definitely living in poverty. Yeah, and, and I think as well, there are at least 
three main definitions that I can think there's absolute poverty, there is relative poverty, which is your poverty in relation to the rest of the population, which quite often the statistics are, and then the Joseph Ryan Tree Trust came up with the term destitution. Do you remember the four or five? So there are three, there are ways in which they categorize destitution, like um, yeah, within a context of a year, have you had, um, you know, struggle with access to food, shelter, safety, um, you know, money, there's a number of factors that then they, they classify as, as being destitute because it's such a hard thing. And you're right to ask the question, it's such a hard thing to, to completely determine um, as well. So, you know, it is it is worth kind of really wrestling with what does poverty look like in our context because, you know, poverty in other contexts, like, you know, somewhere else around the world is very different and, and you know, we should care about that too. And, that maybe be one of our catalyst conversations for the future as well as, you know, how do we think about poverty outside of the local? Um, so I wanted to just ask a, a one or two more wee questions. Um, by the way, there's the perfect storm of uh, issues currently at the minute, removal of universal credit and the furlough, increasing gas prices and the cost of winter, but we'll not talk about that. Um, this is a very famous picture, okay? You can turn around and look at it if you want. But it's this so older fish saying, the two younger fish, how's the water? And the two younger fish say, what the hell is, is water, okay? And so, what is the water that we swim in? And how do we, as the people in this room, need to actually disconnect ourselves from the water of materialism and consumerism uh, and an aspiration which is unhealthy so um we actually become complicit in the system that keeps people impoverished because we want more and more and more things we want to achieve more we want more money we want more stuff we want bigger houses and the knock-on effect of that affects poor people directly but also it tells them that they're not achieving it, it tells them that they're not doing well and i i think for us to truly tackle poverty we need to understand the water that we swim in and go is capitalism a good thing is materialism a good thing is consumerism a good thing how is my heart attached to those things and if my heart is pulled and attached to those things how can i give my heart to the broken how can I give my heart to, to, to people that really need something? Um, does anybody want to comment on, on that whole idea of the water we swim in? I talk all the time because I love the sound of my own voice. But uh, I, I remember just, I know it's touching a wee bit on like global poverty, but just really quick, just before that was, like I've been to Uganda a lot of times with church. I remember the first, the first time I was, when I was younger and you start going, Ah, it makes me so grateful for what I have. And it takes a while for you to go, I don't need all the things that I have. I was learning the wrong lesson. And I just remember reading, just, just to cause some challenge inside you and challenge me again, that I used to think, I wish they could have what I have. But if I want the whole world to look like my world, resource-wide, I need another two and a half planet Earths. So now you know that. It's not possible. So we either have to choose, do we want to hold on to our stuff? Is our stuff that important that we want other people to stay in poverty? Or are we going to do without? Because there's no other way. That's your choice. So that just challenges me when it comes to thinking about this. Yeah, and I think it's, it's really important for us to go, it's not that it's wrong to have things, it's what, what's going on in, in terms of our emotional attachment. 
if we're getting our sense of worth and value and dignity from certain things. I was talking to somebody just yesterday and they were talking about a place that sells um, trainers for £300 a pair, right? And it's people in lower socioeconomic backgrounds that are more likely to buy those trainers. Why? Because they, they want to feel like they've made it in life. They're attaching a value to that. But who's taught them that that is where you find value and worth? Us. We're complicit in, in that. We're complicit in that lie and that distortion. So here's another little question for our panel. Archbishop Desmond Tutu said, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. So how do we do that? How do we go upstream and find out what's really going on? And here's the thing, some of you probably know I'm the chairman of Craig Avon Area Food Bank. And food banks are terrible things, okay? They've become part of our culture and part of our society. They do help people, don't get me wrong, in, in, a, in a place of crisis, but they have become a norm, they've become a normality. They're only ever meant to be an emergency. And so I can just keep giving people who run out of food, food, or I can ask another question. So how do we start to ask those better questions? How do we get, start to think better, my little panel? I think something I caught when these guys were talking, and I'm sure you guys did too, was the generational stuff. You know, a couple of different people hit on that tonight. Um, and I know I had a conversation a few weeks ago with um, a lady who had just retired from special needs teaching. And she was talking about how now she finds the children are so much more violent, acting out, really hard to control, besides the restrictions now placed on teachers. That was a separate thing altogether. But we were chatting about how, you know, generationally that has happened. The kids just haven't arrived in this moment as bad kids. You know, kids have always been kids. But what has happened generationally to come to this point? You know, and that's something that really, you know, when I sat on it, kind of broke my heart a wee bit. So it's like, well, what, what have we been doing and doing and doing and doing that needs to change? Because it's just got worse and worse and worse. And now it's the kids now that are being pigeonholed as just bad kids. You know, what's changed? What happened to get to that point? Um, you know, I sit and reflecting, I am one of those kids that grew up in a council estate whose mum and dad weren't well educated, who were working class. My dad's business went bankrupt. We had food deliveries left at our door. But, you know, I didn't go to university. <laughs> my, my sister, my twin sister did. But in that, the, the difference, what I believe was, we didn't live in a mentality of lack. It just wasn't there. And we didn't look for things that were beyond our means. We knew what we had, and, and we lived within those boundaries as well. Mm -hmm. And we had people who didn't treat us any differently than the kids who did have money. And that was something that within our culture, in our, our church context, in our, our, our youth groups, where it just wasn't a thing. It, it, it just wasn't. You know, um, and I know my world at that stage was quite small, so it was quite unique. But for me, you know, going back to a few questions ago, is one of the key things is relationship. And how do we make an impact with people around us coming in through our church doors? Is it's not just you know, dear love them. It's we're we're just one. You know, the heart of Jesus is that we're one and we treat each other the same, and it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. You know, it shouldn't. It really. It just shouldn't. 
You know, it's as simple for me, it's as simple as that. Great. You know? Okay, anybody else? How do we go upstream? Um, we need to be willing to like let go of our superhero complex as well. Because mm. not, like, just being a helper all the time, it feels really, really good. And if you only have so many hours of the week that you do things, then you really want it to be worthwhile. Like we talk about this often in the office. Like it's a really slow, slow process. Like we want to go, do you want to work with a young person from P4 to fifth year and they might get their GCSEs? Some people sign up, but if I said we're going to paint their room and it's going to look class, people would sign up straight away. <laughs> it, but yeah. it's, it's silly and superficial, so we need to lose our superhero complex and be willing to think this way. So mm -hmm. that's, that's really helpful. Okay, I think churches have got a huge influence in communities. You may not be physically very active, but your influence is enormous. Uh, politically, there, there are a couple of things that, that, that could be done uh, to, to work upstream. One is uh, the real living wage was a really important development, and I think that that needs to be increased. I think there should be legislation to limit uh, how much CEOs can be paid relative to, to the rest of the, of the staff. And the other thing politically is that we really do need to work on the first two years of life give kids the best possible start, give support to parents, give support to mums before the baby's born, and really focus that, and that, I think that makes a huge difference to the, to the child's development, to their future mental health, and to their, to their ability to achieve. Amazing, yeah. Albert Einstein said, the onset of madness is doing the same thing over and over again, and expecting different results. Mm -hmm. For me, as I go around this room, I see one of my wee PYD peers over there, and um, you know that wee girl for me it was whenever she felt that she was being listened to her life changed my people feel as though being listened to and taken seriously that's going to change everything what about you email <laughs> good good so here's a here's a, a we're nearly there folks but um this is one of my favorite quotations okay because um, I find I think it's good in an offensive way. Uh, when we do change to people, they experience it as violence. But when people do change for themselves, they experience it as liberation. Okay, that is a fantastic quote to challenge the church because we do stuff for people. We just do stuff for the community. Come on, we'll go as a church and we'll go over here and we'll do stuff for these people <laughs> over there. How do we do stuff with the community and truly partner with communities? And, and, and you know, so I'll answer my own question in part, but you know, one of the problems that we have is you see that we believe as, as Christians that we, we have the keys to truth. And because we do, everybody else is inferior to us, that we come with the truth. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But we, we, I think we approach things wrongly and I will come and tell you how it really is kind of way. So how do we change that? My degree is in community development. And it's built on five principles. And it's social justice, inequality, and it's uh, community engagement, community empowerment, and working and learning together. And for me, that encapsulates everything that the church should be about. It's, you know, once we learn to work and learn together, everything can change. So, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Uh, I think treat people with respect and listen to them and uh, give them space to be themselves. Um, Aaron White, he does stuff with 24-7. He said this thing, I think it's brilliant. Uh, 
there's another quote to, to meet the quote where he said the poor don't need another pair of shoes um, or another handout they need a seat at your table for the next 10 years and that like if somebody doesn't have any shoes doesn't have any electric they don't just have, not have money they don't have friends right because if i ran out of money if i became poor tomorrow someone's going to help me out so we do things with them by having them at our table not at this table on a sunday at your table in your house um, Sarah Portal, who's one of my best friends in the world, said that um, she was talking about someone asked her one time she, uh, about having poor people around your house and said, well, they see your TV. And she said, Jesus called us to have the poor at our house, not to have big TVs. If you're worried about the TV, get rid of it. So have them around. <laughs> That's very clever. Yeah, I think consistency also. You know, having the open door consistently. You know, getting, as Mark says, about getting rid of the superhero complex. It's not a one-hit wonder. The hand out of food bank at a, on Christmas. It's been showing up every week, consistently building relationship. You know, Dixie always says, you know, it's hard to not to like somebody when you've heard their story. Yeah. You know, they deserve a seat at the table. So true, so true. And I think that we forget something is that that we have as, at least as much to learn from the, those that we would try and help as we have to give. And if we only ever go with the attitude of here, we have something that you need, then I think true relationship can't be built because relationship is built on, on both give and take. So one last little quote, it's not really a question. Um, I don't normally quote Tolstoy, but he's got a good beard. Um, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Um, when I first decided we're going to have this event called Catalyst, I'm going to talk about poverty and we're going to come up with ideas and we're going to come up with solutions. That was my, my thing. And the more I've got into this, the more I'm like, if our hearts don't change, the biggest thing that we can do, the biggest project that we can embark on is in here. It's the transformation of our hearts. It, it's actually saying, as scripture says, you know, God, come and take away my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Help me to love like you love. Help me to reach out. Help me to love others in a way that's going to look like something that's going to look like long-term, committed, uh, and true, that actually... If we don't, we have this really, um, this is my last story and I'm really going to finish, so apologies, but um, I wasn't even planning to tell the story, but in our house we have a little plaque and it's, um, it sits on our mantelpiece and the first time I saw it, I hated it, I hate cheesy little corny little plaques, right, okay, just you can't stand them and I saw it in, um, in a wee gift shop somewhere and I looked at it and I instantly hated it and I walked out of the shop and I just felt like the voice of God speaking to me and go, you need to buy that. I'm like, I hate it. It doesn't even, it doesn't even look nice. Um, but it said on it, love like you'll never get hurt. And um, so I bought it and I thought, I said to my wife, Debbie, we need to buy this plaque. We've been through quite a lot of hard times. And at that particular time, a lot of rejection from some people that we tried to love. We thought we were trying to love them really well. Um, that's another story, but I realized that if I wasn't willing to love people like I'd never get hurt, that I could never love them like Jesus loved them. Um, and the fact is that when you love other people, whether you think they're broken or not, you will get hurt. But unless you give them yourself and your full self, you'll give them something less than it is for them to encounter, hopefully, Jesus and, and his church. And if you're willing to pay the price of being hurt and having to go and get healed up, they will experience life transforming love, you know? So thank you very much. And um, next time, 
uh, on the 25th of November, put that in your diary now, 25th of November, the catalyst conversation is going to be around the environment and global warming. Um, it will just be a couple of weeks after COP26. That's the World Climate Change Summit, which is being hosted in Glasgow a year late. But it will be all over the media and all over the news. And we as the church, and as Christians and, and people from outside, because we would love to make these conversations more open and not just be faith-based. But how do we think about the environment? How do we think about global warming? Um, I don't know if you've ever looked in the Bible, but God had something to do with creation, according to the Bible, that we think is really important to us. Uh, and God has something to say about it. And we are called, actually, in the start of the Bible, to be stewards of the earth. And so it's really important that we engage with that. So one last thing that I will say is I'm going to stick to posters on the wall. And if you would like to um, get involved in helping in an existing project, stick your name there. If you think, I want to help with something to do with addressing poverty, stick your name on the post-it note, stick your, your contact details. If you would like and you feel like, I could really start something new, I have this idea, but I don't really know what to do, but look, I want to actually you know, get old bicycles and fix them up and give them to people so they can get to work, you know, or whatever it happens to be, stick your name on that and we'll be in touch with you. And hopefully these guys are going to stay around for a while. Please feel free to talk and have a chat. If you have any questions or you disagree with everything we've said, which has been better, um, come and talk to us. And hopefully next time as well with... COVID disappearing a bit, we'll be able to do a bit more interaction, a bit more moving around stuff and make this a bit more interactive. So apologies that it's been a bit like information coming your way, but it won't be like that every time. And if you would like to help me next time with the whole environment one, please come and do that because I need help. Okay? Sorry, yes? Is it heretical? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, I work for myself and been an employer for 48 years, and employers get an awful kick in them, capitalists and all sorts of stuff. And so, but I feel that employers knock their lights out to help people, and they get an awful kick in. The other big thing I find that's really difficult is the unions. I mean, my wife was ill a while back. I went to hospital at Craig Avenue. I couldn't believe the posters on the way up. The system's broke, this is that. You know, kick a life out of your employer. It's so aggressive and so almost demonic. And yet, I would say if I asked for a show of hands, yeah, not too many would put their hand up and say they've been praying for their boss. But that's one maybe to think about, folks. So I just want to say bless you and thank you. Sorry, sorry like I'm sounding like a little moaner, but it's a tough one. No, no, unless it is. And there are, there are people who are trying to do the righteous and right thing, your employers, and there are people that aren't. And sometimes it's easy to point at the person. And as a pastor... I, I experience that pain because if anybody ever has a problem in church or with relationships or with somebody else, it's always my fault. And, and that's a, a large, and it isn't actually always my fault, okay? Um, <laughs> but that is a hard burden to carry. And so we will be praying for employers more. So thank you for bringing that up. All right, give our panel a big round of applause. And give up.
Hello. So, folks, the um, posters over there, if you want to put your name to anything, please feel free. Um, and you will not be signing up to anything that will catch you out, but we'd love to have a chat with you.